If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. People in Paris are protesting because their retirement age is being raised from 62 to 64. However, they are driving, married, and have kids by 12? What? Here's Scott Hey, you know, if I was uh, living in France, I could be retired soon. Working man blues. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Spinning the Merle Haggard. The reason is 138 Merle is on uh, Billboard. So wrong. Not Billboard. Rolling Stones. Top 200 uh, singers of all time. There you have it. And we'll have an assembly of Merle throughout the uh, wrestling afternoon. You're going to love it. Uh, I love it. Nine kids and a wife. I got nine kids and a wife. Now it's the other way around. I got nine wives and a kid. You know, it's... It's funny how time changes over uh, the years and stuff. All right, lots going on today, uh, sort of, but not really. Uh, but we, we'll make do as best we can. Feel free to jump into the fray. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, we're getting reaction now. Uh, this is breaking news. Remember that mass shooting in Nova Scotia and um, the person intimidate or imitating a uh, RCMP officer and all hell broke loose and no um, no real plan of attack, per se, uh, from the RCMP. That uh, mass shooting report is now out and is uh, very critical of the RCMP and how it was handled. Uh, the safety minister right now in Truro, Nova Scotia, uh, reacting to that. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it is what it is. And uh, like many things, we have to make sure we learn uh, from these and, 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 and make sure that it does not happen again and we are prepared in the way that we need to prepare, uh, be prepared because you know you look back at this you think my goodness how could this have happened going to play you a, uh, a little sum up of all of this what's going on Global News uh, Calum Smith uh, in Nova Scotia talking about uh, what they are experiencing going through and revealing today the inquiry had a broad scope and mandate but the commissioners who authored the approximately 3,000 page report didn't mince words when it came to highlighting the challenges and failures of the RCMP's response to the April 2020 mass killing. They include missing warning signs of the perpetrator's lengthy history of violence and not factoring in indispensable information from community members when responding that April night. One key component, the force not alerting the public of crucial details about the gunman. Quote, the RCMP's failure to publicly share accurate and timely information, including information about the perpetrator's replica RCMP cruiser in disguise, deprived community members of the opportunity to evaluate the risks to their safety and to take measures to better protect themselves. 22 people were killed in various rural communities over 13 hours beginning April 18, 2020. Most of them residents of Portapique, the community where the gunman was living with his common-law spouse, Lisa Banfield. He assaulted her that night handcuffed her and forced her into the back of his replica RCMP cruiser before she eventually freed herself, hiding in the woods overnight. The gunman set fire to the warehouse and cottage before taking off and beginning to murder his neighbors. The inquiry notes missing warning signs for police intervention despite previous reports of his violence. It also repeats a 2020 report call to complete a comprehensive external review of the RCMP 
and that the public safety minister then identify what responsibilities are better assigned to other agencies, possibly a reconfiguration of policing in Canada, and to do away with the RCMP's Regina Training Academy by 2032, replacing it with a three-year degree-based model for education for all Canadian police services. The inquiry is also asking the Canadian and Nova Scotia governments to fund a program to address the mental health crisis that exists in Colchester, Cumberland, and Hance counties, to respond to an unmet need for mental health, grief, and bereavement supports stemming from the killings. Commissioners also recommend the RCMP adopt a policy admitting its mistakes and accepting responsibility, ensuring accountability is top of mind. Another recommendation is for a federal provincial implementation committee to oversee recommendations and regularly report back to the public. Callum Smith, Global News, Truro, Nova Scotia. Man, uh... 22 people, 13 hours, and they had no idea what the heck was going on. It's it's stunning when you when you think about it. And you know, I understand it's a rural community; they don't have the resources, uh, whatever. But that's just unbelievable. I mean, we need some management in this country. We need where's the leadership? We don't need a Walmart greeter. We need someone who can run the store. We need someone who could manage the people, the supply chains, whatever it takes to keep it going. We don't have that. I feel like we're sitting in a Canada and it's like, a, you know, my kids were uh, young. The wheels on the bus go round and round and we're heading down a mountain road and all the Canadians are shoved in the back. And, and, and you know, the PM's driving down the road, woo, singing a song. Hey, kids, ain't this fun? And every so often, just for a laugh, closes his eyes and puts his arms in the air and goes, wee. Well, you know what? The bus is hitting the guardrail and there's sparks flying everywhere. When is someone going to grab the damn wheel? Like, honestly, you know, this is the same sort of facade we were living when, when, uh, uh, with the healthcare system. Oh, stick your nose up at those Americans. We've got the best healthcare system in the world. We've got the best people working for us in the world. Once you get in there, it's great. But I wouldn't call it the best. And the global pandemic proved that. And the way we're trying to fix that, we got to fix everything else. Because there's nobody in the office. Hello? Is anybody there? All right. Uh, we know what it was like the last three years, and we're pretty much at the anniversary of when we, well, I guess the month of March, depending on when you were told to go home. Uh, but it, and now, for the most part, it is behind us, that being the global pandemic. And as we look back at it, now's the time to look at lessons learned, things we can do differently, what have you. And one of the great things to come out of uh, what we experienced is restauranting, uh, restaurateurs, how they do business, patios, another Another great example, making better use of the space we have. We see this in Europe all the time and, uh, and, and getting something like this here in uh, our neck of the woods or even in the country is sometimes difficult. Uh, that being said, patio season and what I'm speaking about specifically, it's here and a motion passed at a recent general's issue, a uh, general issues committee meeting. Local restaurants looking to have on street patios this year, uh, will see some of their costs weighed by the city. This is a motion moved by Councillor Ted McNeekin. Uh, 
that will see nearly $1,400 in fees waived with the costs recovered through the city's Economic Development Initiatives Reserve. And to talk more about all of this, Ted McMeekin, Councillor, Ward 15, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Ted, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. I am. Great to be with you. So, Ted, this was one of the cool things that did come out of that uh, unfortunate situation we've been going through for the last uh, three years regarding the pandemic. And it's great to see that the city is still allowing this sort of stuff. And we're still looking at, at, at uh, interesting and, and innovative ways to to have patios, uh, restaurants, what have you. Well, we need to encourage uh, where, where we can people to come uh, together safely. Uh, there's a, a, a bit of a penchant, I think, on the part of some, uh, perhaps not to go to a restaurant uh, in a crowded indoor section. Uh, some have a preference to uh, to uh, sit outside on a patio where there's uh, some fresh air. I mean, all the experts say, you know, stay outside as much as you can. And and they're struggling. Rest- many restaurants are struggling. Several have gone under. Uh, and... Uh, you know, restaurants uh, not only feed people, and uh, I think there's a pent-up uh, desire to get out. And uh, again, as uh, some of the anxiety around the pandemic is easing, we're not through it yet, but some anxiety is easing. They want to get out to restaurants and to and to eat. And restaurants are are continuing to be there and to employ people and to struggle. And you know, they pay taxes and all that sort of stuff. So. Uh, the, the former mayor's uh, task force on uh, post-pandemic economic uh, recovery initially recommended um, a waiver of these fees. So we're uh, we're moving forward with that. So if you're a restaurant and you uh, even before the pandemic or during the pandemic, what what is the process? What do you have to do to get one of these outdoor spaces? What do you have to prove? Uh, what sort of hoops do we have to jump through to make that happen? What does the restaurateur have to go through? Well, well, essentially, you've got to identify the spots uh, that you want to use for a patio. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a fee simply to apply. I think it's about $800 just to get permission to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, they try to, we try to coordinate it. Uh, uh, King William Street in Hamilton is a good example of a street that largely has been converted to more of a pedestrian walking street um, with uh, all kinds of patios out and, uh, and crowds. It, it encourages uh, people mm-hmm. to, uh, to bike or to walk down. So they make an application. If, if part of that uh, space uh, requires... Uh, Taking a parking space away, uh, there's a fee for that. That's uh, factored in uh, the lost revenue. Uh, so, in a sense, the the city's uh, potentially giving up some revenue when they when they uh, in some instances right. grant a patio permit. But but you know that's 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 all minor compared to the benefit that I think uh, accrues to uh, the citizens uh, as we respond to. Uh, a strong desire to get back into community and uh, return to some sense of normal. I understand, Ted, that every situation is different. Every lot would be different. Every restaurant would be different, this yep. sort of thing. But, you know, we're looking at an $800 fee just to apply, $1,400 fee that now you guys are waiving, which is cool. And um, and whatever else is, it, whether it be some sort of safety measure uh, yep. or yep. A guardrail or whatever, how much is the average restaurant tour? And, I mean, I understand this is very difficult to do, but it sounds like it's going to cost you a few thousand dollars before you're even in the game. Well, and there's some new fees that the province has uh, has uh, put in place too. Uh, 
so, you, you know, the benefit to uh, to existing patios, new patios, will be somewhere between uh, uh, four, $1,400 and $2,100. There are some fees yeah. that were not waived. If you need a liquor license, that's uh, something that we do on behalf of the province. Right. So that's not being waived. But the uh, uh, the safety features that uh, can be put in place uh, uh, easily without charging a special fee to do that, and the uh, uh, the patio fees themselves and the lost revenue um, uh, for uh, and it's often just one parking spot that's uh, yeah that's eaten up right. This is this is a great idea, and again, we've we've seen this uh, in various cities. If you travel around the world and and such, what's next, Ted? Like, how else? How can we keep this going? How can we keep these opportunities and 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 opening this up? Well, I think I think we need to have a preferential uh, attitude towards uh, uh, you know pedestrian uh, bike culture, particularly in the urban core. Um, you know, the uh, suburbs were a little bit more car dependent because we don't have as much transit uh, or easy easy ways to get around. But I think we want to create uh, walkable communities, pedestrian-oriented communities, and where possible, really make uh, make our uh, our urban centers uh, uh, attractive for people to come together and to talk together and to eat together and to share together. And uh, the businesses that have taken some uh, some time to make some considerable investments uh, in, in their business and take some risk, uh, there'll be periods where where they'll be in some difficulty, and we're going through one of those periods now. So the best thing we can do is be preferential in in, in trying to create uh, this kind of pedestrian walking uh, mm. collaborative coming together communities. And and offsetting where we're able out of uh, uh, it's not a tax hit by the way it's coming out of an economic development reserve fund so so that that's all good news for the restaurateurs and uh, and those of us who uh, who like to frequent uh, frequent them and have an outdoor opportunity to do so. Ted McMeekin with us, Councillor Ward 15, City of Hamilton, patio season almost here and uh, fees being waived uh, by the city to uh, help restaurateurs who are uh, getting back into the patio game over this season. Ted, thank you for the time. Be well. Thanks for your interest. You be well as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. This is huge news. The Vatican today uh, responded to indigenous demands and formally repudiated the doctrine of discovery. Uh, that uh, theory backs uh, back to the 15th century, legitimized the colonial era, uh, era seizure of native lands uh, and formed the basis of the property law that we see today in a Vatican statement. They said uh, that these views did not adequately reflect the equal dignity and rights of indigenous peoples and have never been considered expressions of the Catholic faith. Uh, what does this all mean? Let's bring in Ken Coates, professor, Canada chair and research, uh, sorry, Canada research chair in regional innovation, uh, public policy, university of Saskatchewan. And with us now, Ken, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm just doing great. Good to talk to you. I understand you're in Norway, Ken. Is that correct? I am indeed. So, issues uh, in Canada actually resonate over here. <laughs> wow, that's amazing! All right, so uh, completely off uh, off base here. Uh, just give us a quick uh, quick description. We hear so many great things about the Scandinavian countries around uh, Norway and such. What's your impression? What's it like? 
Well, this is about my 15th trip over. I adore Norway. They're a country that has made some very brave decisions, some of them 50 and 60 years ago, that have set them up to be the wealthiest nation in the world for generations to come. Uh, beautiful country, um, lots of interesting challenges now over, over energy and natural resource development and also the rights of the Sami people. So we have an awful lot of similarities and a lot of good work going on between Canada and Norway. All right, Ken, talk about this, uh, uh, this announcement today. First of all, explain what the doctrine of discovery is to everyone. Well, essentially what the Roman Catholic Church said was that the first Europeans to go into an area um, had the right of occupation, that they, they had the right to sort of claim the land to be themselves. And you go back to 1960s and look at the history books back then, and you talk about Jacques Cartier selling into the into the Gulf of the St. Lawrence and claiming the area, puts a flag up on the ground and de declares it for France. This all goes back to that doctrine of discovery, and essentially what it said was Europeans were civilized, the rest of the world were not. Um, and that, that when the Europeans came in contact with most of the, particularly the, the tribal societies, say, in North America, um, that they had the right to sort of just assert their dominance over their land and to claim it on behalf of, of their own crown and behave on, the, on behalf of the Christian church. So um, the doctrine was essentially marginalized Indigenous people, dehumanized Indigenous people, and provided an ideological foundation for actually just taking over the land and using it as the European settlers wanted to do. So it's a pretty important concept um, and, and quite remarkable that we're this late in the game to actually finally repudiate it. What, um, uh, how, obviously, uh, with truth and reconciliation and the Pope's visit here, this was a sticking point. How significant is this, both for today and the future, but even historically? How significant is this uh, response from the Vatican? Uh, quite significant, but not significant enough. So how, how's that for an answer? Perfect. Um, people right now are sort of wondering why. Why, 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 why wait till now? The Pope was just here a year ago. Surely they knew this was coming. And they could have done this in the presence of Indigenous people that would have been 10 times more powerful to actually sit with Indigenous people from across this country and say, we as a, we as a, as, as a church repudiate these, these ideas. Mm. Um, it, lost, it loses a bit of its authority because it came late in the game. Uh, that said, nonetheless, it basically sort of removes one of the pillars of European assert, asserted domination. It, it, and it, it's not that somebody's going to come and take your house away from you tomorrow and, and declare that you don't own it anymore. We're not going to go back to anything that dramatic whatsoever. But this is essentially recognizing that for more than 500 years, indigenous people have been denied the most basic of, of human rights by, by the European countries, that they, they wrote them out of history, wrote them out of society, wrote them out of the economy in a major way. So for indigenous peoples there, some of them are actually in shock. They're looking yeah. at, we had never thought this day would come. Hmm. And they've been fighting for it for 30 years of concerted efforts to sort of get this, this done. So on the one hand, there's a bit of celebration. On the other hand, a bit of frustration that it took so long. And, and now the real question is, where do we go from here? Yeah. So, okay, the Catholic Church has said the doctrine of discovery doesn't apply anymore. So how does that change you know, uh, life in life in Six Nations. How does that change life in Thunder Bay? You know, are we actually going to see anything come out of this that, that actually recognizes that the, the government of Canada, the governments of Ontario, municipal governments, rethink the way their relationship with Indigenous peoples and their traditional territories? How does this affect future negotiations, whether it's on any of these issues, resources, what have you? What about restitution? 
Well, the restitution issue is a really big one, and, it, and it's getting bigger sort of all the time. Lots of different sort of a, a demands for compensation and 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 some some sort of restitution, as you described. I, I don't really see that being a big part because it's it's actually so fundamental. I really think what this does is it really challenges governments and non-Indigenous Canadians to rethink the future. And what they basically have to do is say, okay, can we come up with a different model? Let me use a good example of something that's kind of underway. There's a process called Indigenous and Protected uh, Conservation Areas that have been established across the country, where Indigenous peoples are getting playing a major role, kind of the role that national parks used to play, in actually protecting and, re- and rehabilitating really important uh, sort of pieces of our geography. Um, that's happened sort of under the radar, but in fact, it sort of carries with it the assumption that Indigenous peoples have a special relationship with the land, a stewardship responsibility and capacity, but also that the, the government of Canada can step aside and let Indigenous people step forward. So this is actually, it's going to take a long time to figure out how to do something about this in southern Ontario, because the population is so dense, the development is so extensive, you know, almost, the only places you have that are they're either protected green belts or they're, they're national parks or provincial parks and things like that. We're actually already seeing this kind of recognition in, in the north, in the Yukon Northwest Territories in Nunavut and Labrador and northern Quebec where Indigenous peoples are gaining a much greater say over the development of their traditional territories and feel like they're they're honestly being recognized as stewards of the land and, and partners in development. So it, part of our country has actually figured this stuff out. We just don't very good at figuring it out in urban places. And so urban people look at this and say, well, what does this mean? How, does this mean that the, you know, the, the, the Six Nations are going to have control over Hamilton, and be able to determine housing policy or, or land allocation policy? Yeah. It's not, that's very, very unlikely. Yeah. What it, I hope it means is that the city of Hamilton and all the other communities in the area reach out to the First Nations and, and say, what do you think this means? Let's have a conversation about how we can do stuff different in the future. That's where I hope this goes, because basically you've taken one of the pillars of racism off the table, thrown it out the window and said that doesn't apply anymore. So now let's build a country together. And that actually means collaboration and cooperation. If you want my guess, three or four years from now, maybe even sooner, you're going to see all the municipalities and cities in southern Ontario having regular meetings with Indigenous people, bringing them into sort of having shared committees, um, inviting Indigenous members onto city councils and things of that sort. So you can actually start planning a future side by side rather than sort of in opposition to each other. That's kind of stuff that I think I hope comes out of here. And I hope I would love to see a country brave enough to say that instead of a doctrine of, of discovery, can we actually come up with a, a doctrine of, of shared stewardship where we actually recognize indigenous folks as full partners in the management of our land? Ken Coates with us, Professor, Canada Research Chair, Regional Innovation, Public Policy University of Saskatchewan, Doctrine of Discovery. Uh, today, the Vatican uh, responded and formally repudi- uh, repudiated the Doctrine of, of Discovery. This is a huge, hugely significant move. Uh, Ken, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're always welcome. Take care. Bye now. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
All right, we were uh, talking to uh, Gabor Lukacs, president of Air Passenger Rights and Advocacy Group, uh, a few weeks ago, a little while ago, talking about changes and and more money putting uh, being put in to help the backlog of, uh, of passengers who have complaints, working through the backlog as opposed to you know cleaning the system up so the backlog doesn't get larger. Uh, anyway, it was mentioned in the budget, and many people were meant, uh, surprised it was mentioned in the budget, especially when things like housing were not. Uh, that being said, are we still in the same place? Is something different here? Uh, is it somehow better now? Let's bring in Gabor Lukacs, uh, President, Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, and with us now, Gabor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. I'm very well. So, Gabor, is there anything different here than the last time we talked to you a week or so ago? I mean, what, what is there? What 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 came in the out of the budget regarding this? Not really. What we are hearing now is just some announcements. Even in the most generous way, we would look at it. These are just promises, nothing concrete. The government is talking not just about more money, but also changing the process of the Canadian Transportation Agency to what they claim to be switching from quasi-judicial to mediation arbitration. Now, don't ask me what is the difference between public government officials, administrative tribunals acting as arbitrators as opposed to quasi-judicial bodies. I, to my, you know, non, non, uh, legally trained mind or limitedly legally trained mind, they, they all sound very much the same. Uh, but, um, it sounds like the government may want to change the process. However, the root cause of why, as you said very correctly, why we are here, why do we have 42,000 uh, complaints in the backlog? Th- that is because the rules themselves don't lend to uh, resolution to fast resolution, they require inordinate amount of evidence, and they are far from being straightforward. So uh, why we, we've talked about this before, and in the articles that you you're quoted in, you talk about the EU standard and why we're not there. Why are we not there? Obviously, the airlines don't uh, want to go there, and and there's politics and money and, and such involved. But at the end of the day, why not just do and what the EU is doing is saying, well, this is the world standard. This is what we're doing now. Because the government is not willing to do that. That's a simple reason. Back in 2017, when the framework was brought in to begin with, the government could have easily just copied uh, the European Union's gold standard and they just refused to do so. What they came up with is, is a system which uh, may look good in the paper. If you have only one complaint, maybe 10 complaints, it is nice to all be fair and dig down, even if the amounts mm. at stake are just a couple hundred dollars, but let's do a full uh, hearing and, and let's, let's require mountains of of evidence but when we talk about tens of thousands of cases tens of thousands of complaints which are still just the tip of the iceberg then it becomes unmanageable the strength of the european regime is not simply that it is fair fairness may be in the eyes of the of the viewer but the biggest strength of european regime is its simplicity it requires just a few minutes in the vast majority of the cases to ascertain whether a passenger is eligible to compensation. Uh, too many cooks in the kitchen here and no one getting fed. Uh, too many people with their hands in, in, in the cookie jar here. Like it, Again, it seems like a no-brainer the way you have explained it so eloquently on several uh, different medias and such. And yet we still are where we are, chasing the carrot and, and running the, after the problem. Um, with what you're seeing now, how close is that to the EU standard that you speak of? 
we haven't seen any concrete draft of legislation. What we have seen and what we do support is the opposition uh, critique Mr. Um, Taylor Buckrock's bill uh, C-327, which does seek and does accomplish, if it passes, harmonization of Canada's regime with the European gold standard. That is being endorsed by the leading consumer protection uh, organizations in Canada, such as the Public Interest Advocacy Center, the Option Consumer Turn Quebec, and our self-serve passenger rights. So far, the government has been quite silent about it, even though Mr. Buckrock challenged the government to steal our homework, to implement it as a government bill, it is yet to be seen what they are going to do. What I expect is that the changes are going to be uh, quite uh, conservative when it comes to substance. And I'm quite concerned that the government is not going to have the courage to touch the root causes and to have a real European style regime. So what about fee increases that we are hearing? Are those justified? Fee increases are economic questions, and uh, and uh, you know justified is a very subjective notion. But mm. ultimately, there is no free lunch. Somebody has to pay for it. It's yeah. either the taxpayers pay for it, the public purse, or the users pay for it. Which is the wiser is an economic question that I think there are lots of good debate should be happening. And I would very much love to see a, a public debate about how Canadian airports and, and, and airport security are being funded. Uh, because I know that people on the other side of the, of the argument who would like to see the public purse pay for it have some interesting arguments. It would be great to see this clash in public debates, in, in people showing how the numbers add up and what can be better for, from economic perspective. But these are, these are not, uh, just what you or I feel. It's a question of what the numbers say. Uh, so, uh, of course, politicization of these issues is a problem. Uh, and, and perhaps the government may, what may, they may be doing is not popular. Uh, but that's not something I would necessarily fault the government for. It's more the luck of a broader, um, idea, broader vision of what air transportation uh, what the air travel sector is going to look like in two, three, five, ten years, which I find is sorely missing. Gabor Lukacs with us, President Air Passenger Rights Advocacy uh, Group in the federal budget. Uh, chat of fixing the situations that we have, um, but you know, it's uh, good money after bad if the system stays the same. Gabor, as always, thanks for the time. Keep up the great fight. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So, um, and, and remember all this, the stink about the hotel room, uh, and the price of the, who stayed in the $6,000 a night hotel room it was on the river, uh, came with a butler, three beds in it. And now, um, it was interesting. Liberal House leader Mark Holland actually brought this up again to attack the conservatives about their misrepresentation of facts. And then we start hearing that, uh, the reason that the stay at the Queen at the uh, Queen Elizabeth's funeral, the hotel was so high, was because of the RCMP. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't all him. It was all the security. Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me on. So, Franco, from what we understand, then the security were staying in the room with the Prime Minister in one of those other three beds? Well look, I, I really How does that work? <laughs> well, look, I really don't know exactly what's going on here, but let me tell you, I've got a lot of thoughts on this matter, but let me just start with one thing right here, okay? Let's just put ourselves into the Prime Minister's office for a quick second. Let's pretend we're a part of the Prime Minister's staff or the Prime Minister himself, okay? If it was the case 
that all of these huge costs were because of the RCMP, well, then wouldn't you just tell Brian Lilly right away when he first broke the story and asked you about it in October, right? If all of this was for security costs and you were working for the prime minister, wouldn't you just tell Brian Lilly that right away so that this doesn't become a story? But that's not what we've seen. We've seen the prime minister's office completely ignore journalists. Um, we've seen one minister's staff and minister's office actually tell bureaucrats uh, not to answer any questions. We, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, sent in an access to information request. They sent back a redacted response. Uh, we've seen time and time again in the House of Commons them dodge the question. And then they finally admit that it was Trudeau who stayed in that room. When did they do that? As Biden was coming to town to try to bury the story. So none of this really makes sense. If it was really for security costs, why wouldn't they just say it right away? Uh, And again, with further investigation, and correct me if I'm wrong here, this is for that one suite um, that this is quite expensive, not a series of rooms that would probably involve a lot of security. Uh, I understood this was specifically about this deluxe suite that came with the butler and, and the view and all of that. Well, that's my reading of this as well. So then here comes to another point, right? Let's set aside all the fishiness of, of the, the tale that I just said. But hold on a second. Well, then why did you have to stay at the river suite of the Corinthia that comes with yeah. the butler, right? You know it's an expensive hotel uh, when you could have stayed, saved money staying at the Four Seasons or the Savoy or the Shangri-La. So even if the costs were inflated because of security, they were still staying at the Corinthia in the river suite where they could have saved money by staying at the Shangri-La. And here's another question. If it was security driving up the cost, well, how much extra did they increase the cost by? So they're still not giving taxpayers the whole truth here, it doesn't seem like to me. Um, is this story resonating or is it just us that are concerned about it and, and the lack of, of mismanagement and such that are paying attention? Because this story, when it came out, there was lots of chatter when we didn't know who it was. Now that we know who it was, there wasn't, doesn't seem to be any recourse. No, I, no, no, I think it is resonating. So the reason why there wasn't any recourse is because they tried to bury the story on an evening when the president was coming to town because they thought, well, if we release the name now, if we finally own up to it and say it's Trudeau, hopefully the media won't be able to cover it or they will be able to cover it. But the real news cycle will be taken up with the president's visit. But you know what? I was actually talking to my mom the other day. and I was talking about how Freeland is talking about finding savings in the budget. And she made a joke saying, oh, yeah, are they going to finally stop staying in these $6,000 per night hotel rooms? Now, my mom does not pay attention to politics. Um, so I'm starting to hear, you know, just average people, normal Canadians who are busy with their lives starting to talk about this. And even beyond that, two more things. I think it resonates because when so many Canadians are struggling at home, you find out that, you know, the head of the government essentially is racking up these huge tabs abroad. But also to the point, the second point I wanted to make is that this is becoming the, the rule, not the exception, where the government spends a ton of money abroad and then goes out of the way to try to cover up the waste from taxpayers. 
Uh, that was my next question, Franco. Isn't there, like, obviously, politicians travel. I'm sure there's a staff in a department that, that looks just after that. Is there not a standard template on, you know, here, we got to check these boxes before we do this, as opposed to let's just get us the best suite in the house? <laughs> well, it seems like there is a standard template, and it seems like the standard template is how can we rack yeah. up as big of a bill as possible? Right. Because, as I said, this is becoming the rule, not the exception. We, we know about this six thousand dollar per night hotel room during the Queen's funeral. You and I have talked about on this show uh, before as well about the governor general's adventures abroad. Right. Where they're mm-hmm. on airplanes, uh, they're enjoying beef Wellington, they're enjoying beef Carpaccio, stuffed pork tenderloin. So unfortunately, there does seem to be a template. And the template seems to be how can we live high on the hog at the taxpayer's expense? Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Uh, obviously know that uh, it was the Prime Minister that stayed in the $6,000 a night uh, room for the uh, Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Apparently now, though, that's all part of RCM security. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, lots of chatter. Uh, and, and, you know, we're really not, we're hearing this from all different political stripes. We're hearing this from every level of government, whether it's municipal, uh, provincial, or federal, the interference of the Chinese Communist Party in Canada's affairs, whether it's elections, whether it's education, whether it's medicine, uh, whether it's technology. Uh, and a new poll from Leger suggests that over a third of Chinese Canadians believe the government of China has tried to interfere in elections and pressure Canadians in pursuit of its political aims. And everybody, well, even the Prime Minister, when he was asked about his MP by a journalist, he brought up the term racism. He started playing the racism card and how this uh, is racist towards Chinese Canadians. Well, Chinese Canadians have have begun to speak up and say that we've been telling you about this for years and nobody's listening to us. And, of course, they're scared to speak up in fear of retribution from their old uh, country and government and such. So uh, it's it's fascinating to see the, the, all sides of this discussion coming up and, 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 and not hiding behind issues that prevent us from arriving at a solution. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, and is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, uh, Scott. Thank you again for having me on uh, the show. Good to speak with you. So tell us about this uh, polling uh, by Leger in regard to Chinese Canadians and the interference that they're feeling in their lives. Well, for sure, we went out. Uh, I mean, we polled with with the general public, with with uh, you know the typical Canadian, and gotten some viewpoints on how they feel about uh, about this situation, about this issue. Um, but as you as you sort of referred to it in your introductory remarks, I mean, we we thought there was really something we could uh, we might learn from speaking to Canadians of Chinese ancestry. So we went out and spoke to five hundred uh, Canadians of uh, of Chinese ancestry and. Uh, and, and this was a range of, of some of some of whom were, have been born here in Canada, um, of uh, uh, some who have immigrated, uh, you know, quite a while ago, and some who have immigrated more recently. And we asked them about how they felt about this. And um, certainly, as you as you alluded to, over a third feel that that uh, there is for, there is truth to these allegations. They believe the allegations. 
Um, you know, it's not universal. Obviously, there's some 30, 27 percent who, who, who uh, you know, say they they don't believe these are true. But then there's another large number that are that are, uh, you know, not not sure. And it just says to me that, uh, you know, this is this issue is alive within this community, uh, you know, uh, not surprisingly. We hear lots of racism when allegations are made, but we don't hear this side of the story. Uh, and, and I've talked to various Chinese Canadian organizations where they say they're fearful to speak out. Well, yeah, I think you, uh, there is a bit. First of all, um, they're not, uh, they're not, uh, they don't trust the Chinese government. Um, you know, 67%, uh, uh, indicated that um, not surprising, especially uh, those who have recently come to Canada and you know probably have have uh, come as a result of some of the crackdowns in Hong Kong or against yeah. some of the pro democracy movements we saw there. So, so certainly, I think this is disconcerting for them. Um, we asked a very a very direct question that really could only be asked of this population: like, have have you experienced any form of intimidation or pressure? And um, while you might say first blush, it's not a huge number, 6% said they had, um, but 6% Scott of 1.7 or 1.6 million Chinese Canadians, um, that's not, ins- yeah. that's not yeah. a small amount of, of, of potential voters who are, who are being pressured, who, who basically say, yes, I've been pressured. And then to your point, sorry, you want to jump in, but to your point, Six percent. When we asked that question, another six percent said, "I'd rather not answer." Which, oh my, I, I can't tell you what that means, uh, Scott. But I think you're—I don't think you're super far from the truth. When, when potentially you've got some people who are just who are just pretty cautious about what they say. You know, it's interesting because this is the line that made the headlines in that it's just uh, over a third of Chinese Canadians believe the government of China tried to interfere in elections here. Okay, that's one question. That's one avenue, one spoke in this wheel. What to me is quite telling about your research, Andrew, 67% of Chinese Canadians do not trust the the Chinese Communist Party, the the ruling government there. That speaks volumes. Yeah, you know, for sure. Right. And, uh, you know, they all they maybe they've got, uh, you know, they, they have their reasons. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. We asked uh, we asked a question. I'm sure you got it later in our poll. We asked, so, um, you know, how do they feel about the Chinese president? Um, you know, do you think he's a he's a, a force for good or, a, a dis, you know, a, a force for the, the negative or, you know, mixed and only seven percent said that they felt generally he was a force for uh, a force for good. So, you know, there's lots of lots of concern, lots of suspicion. And I think, uh, you know, when you think back to what what compelled uh, a lot of uh, China, you know, a lot of Chinese Canadians to to sort of come to our country and, and, and set up roots, I would suspect the ability sort of our our, our democratic freedoms and and uh, and lack of sort of government coercion would have been, for some of those people, some uh, yeah. you know a compelling reason. Like most immigrants, they come here for a you know for a better life. As you yeah. look at all of this and digest it, Andrew, what stands out for you? What stands out for you as someone who 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 studies well, these trends? So, so I think there were there were two takeaways for me. One we touched on was the six percent. Like I think that number, um, you know. In, in the in the growing 
case for a public inquiry to really start mm. to get to the bottom of this and 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 not just sort of uncover you know what happened but put in place some ideas and some some steps to to let's try and let's try to avoid this right let's let's make this hard for for this to happen in future that stood out the other one that stood out you you did touch on it too in your introductory remarks the like the the political the political leadership, the political class have to be mindful that, um, you know, if the rhetoric gets too supercharged on this, you can fall into the trap of, of uh, really making, you know, uh, people of Chinese uh, ancestry feel uncomfortable and start to feel that maybe this is a somewhat, you know, um, you know, piling on f- with an anti-Asian racist, um, anti-Asian racist perspective. Like we asked, we tested that notion that the prime minister had sort of initially early on in this issue, right? He kind of countered, basically said, look, you, yeah. if you start uh, digging too deep in this, you're just being racist. Hmm. 50, 52% kind of agreed that, that you have to be, uh, you know, that you have to be careful here, that it is, it could be seen as a form of anti-Asian racism. So, to me, the big lesson in this poll is that for the politicians, um, it's a serious issue. Let's have a really serious look and maybe not look at it as an opportunity to score a lot of political points, um, because that could lead the rhetoric to a, to a point where, you know, we start to make some folks, uh, you know, who are kind of the target of this a bit uncomfortable. Creating more racism than the, what they're talking about. Andrew ends with his executive vice president, Central Canada for Leger. New polling suggests a third of Chinese Canadians believe the government has tried to interfere. Sixty-seven percent uh, don't trust the Chinese Communist Party. Six percent saying they have felt that pressure and interference. Fascinating stuff, Andrew. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, uh, Scott. Take care. Good, good rest of the program. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we're continuing to see this trend. The federal liberals, uh, this is Nanos, uh, polling are trending downward in three key measures while conservatives and their leader uh, surpassing uh, Justin Trudeau when it comes to the question of who Canadians would prefer now as the Prime Minister, according to Nano's research, to talk more about all of this. Nelson Wiseman with us, professor with the Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and with us now. Nelson, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you, Scott. Nelson, does anything, any of this make any difference if we're not in an election campaign? No, it doesn't, because we're not in an election campaign, <laughs> as you say. But, it, you know, it indicates uh, some shift. And even then, you've got to take into account polls like these have margins of error. If the margin of error was, let us say, 3%, the only number that exceeded that was was Trudeau's popularity dropping by more than that, 5%. But then the margin, uh, you know, it's a technical point, but that's the margin of error for the poll overall. It isn't necessarily... It's a much higher number for Trudeau's number or the numbers for individual leaders themselves. So I do think it does reflect a reality, but uh, I don't put that much um, onus on the poll. A lot will happen between now and the next election, including the fact that Trudeau may not even be the leader of the Liberal Party. Mm. Is that part of the reality? 
Yes, because if numbers like this persist, if this isn't just a uh, a blip, because in effect this was, he dropped, I think, 4% since the last uh, poll that Nanos did on the same question. If if they're still down, and apparently according to his... uh, vote preference indicator, like which party would you vote for? The Conservatives are at 35, and the Liberals are at 29. Well, if you win 35% of the vote, um, the Conservatives will definitely win the next Parliament, and they may very well win a majority. Uh, If that number stays where it is, what you're going to have is a lot of antsy liberal backbenchers who are going to start leaking to the media that they're not happy that and there will be and they'll leak what's going on in caucus this is what brought down uh, Jean Chrétien and uh, so the different but there are differences between because Chrétien actually lost control of the party machinery you had uh, Paul Martinites who were organizing uh, to undo Chrétien. We don't have that yet in the Liberal Party. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but I think we have people in the Liberal government who are probably more popular than Trudeau himself. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of Christia Freeland. Mm -hmm. So if liberal MPs think, oh, you know, we got a better chance with her, and I haven't seen any polls showing how she would do, let's say, against Polyev, uh, they will uh, they will indicate that. You know, their their priorities to get reelected. Yeah, individual MPs. So we remember the strength of the Ontario Liberal Party uh, in the last couple of decades. McGinty had a good run, then Wynne took over and such. And and now, you know, you can put most of, of the party in, into the back of a minivan. Uh, they've lost official party status. They didn't seem to be make, m- making much of a dent in the last provincial election as well. Are we seeing the same thing happen to the federal Liberals? A lot of the same people went from the province to the feds, and, including Gerald Butts and such. Are we seeing the same issues that plagued uh, the, the province of McGinty and Wind Camps happening with, with Justin Trudeau? No, I, I think it's completely different because uh, the feder- in the federal election, the Liberals are a major player in Quebec. They hold more seats in Quebec than in any other, uh, I think, than, I'm not sure if any other province, but they hold a majority of the seats there. So you get a huge leg up just, uh, you know, in Quebec. So the dynamics are very different. And even in Ontario, it's true, the Liberals uh, have now um, really done badly in two elections. But let's remember, in the last election, uh, they got more votes than the NDP. The problem the Liberals have is that the support for them is spread like um, butter on toast. It's Mm. not concentrated. It's not lumpy like the NDP support is. So that's that's what is very critical. Uh, the other thing I, w- I just getting back to the poll we're analyzing now this Nanos poll. The other thing I would say I I didn't get a chance to check the exact dates, but I think it happened. I'm sure the polling happened in the past two weeks. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about well, why have the Liberals dropped, or why is Trudeau dropped specifically? 
And the reason is because the whole uh, the, the revelations about Chinese interference in our I elections. Was, I was going to ask you if, how much of an impact threat, you thought that had. Yeah, exactly. And the whole thrust of the story of the stories that we've gotten so far is that, oh, well, Trudeau was warned and he didn't do anything. And and he's been very elusive in responding to questions, partly reasonably so, because these are national security matters. But but um, to people, it just doesn't appear transparent. So you've got the public who, who does want a public inquiry, although they're fooling themselves if they think they're going to learn much in a public inquiry, because a lot of it will be in camera, because you're going to have CSIS people. At the end of the day, Nelson, all people Canadians want to know is what someone knew and when they knew it. And there's got to be a way to do that without, you know, uh, telling all of Canada's dirt, dirt, uh, dark, dirty secrets. Well, you know, it, it also depends what it is that you know. For example, I don't believe uh, uh, Trudeau said that he can't comment on the global news story because it's full of falsehoods. And I think... There are some falsehoods in it. For example, the story claimed that CSIS urged Trudeau to drop his candidate in Don Valley North. I don't believe that. I don't think the Global Report said that, Nelson. Uh, as they'll say, as Sam Cooper has said, they don't provide evidence. They just, they just. I agree. Uh, yeah, I yeah. agree. But that's what the Global that I read a story, yeah. and it said that he was urged. In fact, I wrote the uh, the journalist who who, um, who who Catherine Tunney of CBC, and I say, could you send me the source? Could you send me a link? She didn't send me a link because, and I can't track it down. But she sent me the um, an excerpt from the story. So, All right. I don't know if I'd be getting my uh, my confirmation from another media source contradicting another one, but I hear where you're coming from, Nelson, and we're out of time. Nelson Wiseman with us, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've talked uh, for the last several weeks about chat GPT and everything that it does. I thought it was just all about, you know. <laughs> writing essays. No, it's everything. Uh, let's uh, bring in Dave Mason, Director of Enterprise Security, Dark Trace Canada, and with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm very well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well, Dave. When people say to you or ask you, and I'm sure lots of your friends would ever do, and say, what is this all about? How do you give them an answer that they understand? I'll give an answer to understand. I tell them that it's all about using artificial intelligence. And that usually gets people saying, what the hell is artificial intelligence? And I always just say, mm. it's basically intelligence that wasn't born, but was actually built by people. Uh, and people get a bit frightened about it because it seems so complicated and difficult to understand. Uh, but it's often easier to understand when you actually explain, well, we're using artificial intelligence to make your oven cook better and uh, be more efficient. Or we're using artificial intelligence uh, to make your car run better and use fuel more efficiently. And then people may understand, so it's a tool that we can use as human beings to make things, make life better. And I always say, yeah, that's basically what artificial intelligence is. But a gold intelligence, uh, uh, intelligence and technology, it's a double-edged sword. It's for good or for bad. 
Uh, and the information is both uh, true and not so true uh, as well. I- I've sort of uh, summed it up this way, and tell me if this is wrong or, or inaccurate in any way. Uh, you know, years ago, the internet, the internet came on board, and we had everything at our fingertips. Whatever you wanted to look up, it was there. What AI does is collect all of this information under an issue or topic you have chosen and assemble it and put it all together for you. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. But always remember, is the internet that great organ of truth? Well, probably yeah. not, okay? So uh, garbage in can be garbage out. So it depends on what you ask um, uh, the AI to do for you. Uh, I would always check it, to be perfectly honest with you. So, and many have said that, um, you can get a beautiful paper written for you, but perhaps not using the correct facts. So what is the concern here? Why? Because ag- again, you know, people were scared of the internet when it started. Uh, we even saw during the pandemic how our use of che- uh, technology has changed. What's the fear here? What are we worried about? I think it's basically because we don't really understand it. And it's also because change is happening at pace. We all welcome change to some extent and we're all different, some in different ways and different times when it comes to dealing with change. But with AI and technology moving at the pace it's moving now, that change is coming really, really thick and fast. So chat GPT came out, what, in January? But already we're at GPT-4. So they know mm-hmm. that's only in a couple of months. Things are moving really quickly, and I think that's what's scaring people. Some have said that, you know, we got to pause, we got to hit the brakes here, uh, tap the brakes. Can you throttle down tech? Can you pause the brakes when w- what is happening, what you say is happening? Well, it depends where you are. If you live in a Western liberal democracy where there's rule of law, yeah, you might go put the brakes on. But guess what? What about all those other places in the world where that doesn't exist? Yeah. Uh, no, there won't be any brakes supplied at all. Um, we've got to accept that things are going to change, change quickly. What we've got to do is speed up our response to that and start giving some critical thinking about it all. So those fears of places like China and Russia, obviously more heightened as a result of this, playing by a different set of rules. Yeah, basically. So moving forward, we've heard how uh, companies are using this. I've heard some incredible stories how people put business plans into this and and come up with solutions and that sort of thing. There was an article in in the the press earlier on this week of how many jobs were going to be lost of this. It sort of sounds like the the manufacturing uh, uh, revolution that there was of, of 20 or 30 years ago when everything went off seas. How big of an impact is this going to make in industry? Uh, well, let's 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 be no doubt about it. That it will have an impact. Is it is it going to get rid of three hundred million jobs? I think that was the quote I, I read somewhere. Yeah, week. yeah. Not 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 in but remember, always remember, this has happened throughout history since the Industrial Revolution. What human beings yeah. did was just get different jobs when when something new came along. Mm-hmm. No, it's absolutely definitely going to, going to have an impact. But let's let's think that there's two sides to it. There's going to be a good impact. It's going to make life all much better and bring new discoveries and and, and absolutely fantastic stuff. But it's also because people can then use it for bad things at the same time. But as I said before, that applies to pretty much every technology. But it is going to have an impact. All I would say is when you're engaging with these tools, remember the information that you yourself put in, you've given up to the internet. So if you've yeah. got a great business plan out of it, it's probably because you've exposed your business to the internet. You might not want to have done that. Good point. Uh, life is about to get a lot faster or already is, isn't it, Dave? Uh, yeah, actually, life is very fast right now. AI makes it faster. And when 5G comes along, and that's slowly being rolled out throughout Canada, that's really going to make things fast. Dave Mason with us, Director of Enterprise Security, Dark Trace Canada, talking about chat GPT and the concerns around it. Dave, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. See you next time. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. 
you could miss it. The long-awaited Mass Casualty Commission's final report into the 2020 Nova Scotia shooting highlighted significant systemic issues within Canada's National Police Force and called for widespread changes. Uh, 22 dead over 13 hours. It was just a, a brutal situation in Nova Scotia. Hopefully we'll find some answers uh, that will change things moving forward. Megan King is with us, digital broadcast journalist with Global News Halifax, and is with us now. Megan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Scott. I'm glad to join you. Megan, I, I just can't imagine the, the cloud that's hanging over Nova Scotia as this information comes out. Give us a bit of an update here. What are your what are your takeaways from this report? What stood out? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Uh, today we saw the conclusion of an inquiry into the deadliest mass shooting in modern Canadian history. Some really damning fines and extensive recommendations being presented for how to move forward and really make sure that we uh, never see this happen again. Uh, I understand you have talked to some family members of victims and such. Are, are Nova Scotians comfortable with the issues and how they're being addressed here? Yeah, a real mixed response to the report. Um, I'd say cautious optimism being the main feeling in the room. One family member actually told me he was surprised at just how scathing it was towards RCMP. Also driving home the fact that this is just the beginning, as these families will be following along to make sure that these suggestions are taken seriously and followed through on by policymakers. Uh, it seemed at what at one point nobody seemed to know what was going on. What are some of the recommendations that we're hearing? Some of the uh, some of the points that have come forward to to hopefully stop this from ever happening again. Well, more than half of the final report's recommendations are directed at policing. So that's 75 of the 130 recommendations about policing itself. The report slams the RCMP's response to the April 2022, or sorry, 2020 tragedy. And it says it uh, failed to keep the public informed and to use the emergency alert system. That was a big point in here is the alert system could have been used. Um, local police did know how to use it. And RCMP said they just did not. The commissioner told the room that it's calling for major changes to RCMP oversight, processes, and culture overall, even suggesting a process to rethink the structure of policing in Nova Scotia and a national review of public alerting. It's interesting because um, communication seemed to be obviously lacking during this, uh, not only uh, the ability for officers to communicate within between themselves, but also to warn the public what was going on. We've seen services across the country embrace, uh, jump on, use social media, whatever, in different ways. Why did it happen here? Is there is there lack of a, a standardization across the country? Because it seems like you said we have the technology, it just didn't get used this time. Absolutely. That is what um, they still are looking for answers and, and may never see the answers of for some of these family members, because um, we did find out between different RCMP um, areas and different police forces, there was communication. They were calling each other and knew what was happening, but that wasn't given to the broader community. There was mm. um, it took an incredibly long time for them to even let the public know that the um, the perpetrator was dressed as an RCMP officer, and that he was driving a mock cruiser. Um, that information could have saved lives, and that's that's why the alert system being used would have been an incredibly helpful thing and, and um, one of the biggest concerns for a lot of these victims' families. So reason they, they didn't, um, chose not to, not familiar with the technology, uh, any of that coming out yet? 
it does sound to be like true lack of training. Um, it seems a lot of mm. these RCMP officers felt that they did not have training for a situation of this nature. A big thing brought up by policymakers that were there, by the commission itself, was that in rural areas, this may just be lacking. It's it's a, an idea that the system has to be um, completely changed. There needs to be a better idea of what the RCMP does, especially in rural communities. What about what uh, we knew and in the intelli- intelligence we knew about the shooter prior to all of this? Like many are wondering, how does a person, you know, get the stuff for the car, for a replica RCMP vehicle? And then, you know, the the, the uh, costuming or whatever he had, the equipment that he had. W- was enough investigation done? Done into this person prior to this happening? Did any of that come up? Right, yes. This was actually a huge point in that um, they they make it very clear from the commissioner's uh, perspective in this report, there was so many red flags here. There was so many early mm. signals that this was a possibility, um, especially talking about gender-based violence. The, the uh, perpetrator's uh, long-term girlfriend being a victim of domestic gender-based violence and having a history, this perpetrator, of violence within his family growing up. Um, He'd been reported to police on multiple occasions and was known in the community to be an aggressive person. Uh, They make a big point in the report, the commissioners saying that uh, this was something that could have and should have been seen and predicted earlier because people that get to this level do start with things like gender-based violence. Hmm. Um, we, we certainly remember during the height of all of this, there were issues with the then commissioner, Brenda Lucky, and uh, chatter about the weapons being used and information getting out that shouldn't have been, perhaps. Did any of that come out in all of this? It just seems to be disorganized from, from the get-go. Yes, um, Brenda Lucky, no, no uh, she was not there. Um, the new commissioner, uh, the new RCMP head was there and, and has very actively been saying, that he wants this change, that they want to make sure that um, things do change for the better and that instruction is given. Um, it was just the commissioners making their announcements today with with family being able to talk amongst themselves afterwards and, and then talking with the media um, if they so choose, uh, so chose. But in the coming days, I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about that as it is 4,000 pages um, of information that everyone will be searching through. So now what, Megan? What happens now moving forward? Obviously, uh, RCMP uh, uh, chastised through all of this. Does that change legalities, uh, lawsuits, whatever? What's next for all of this? Yeah, and uh, that was the big point here uh, for for families, at least. They said their biggest thing was moving forward. This is not the end. This is just the beginning. They want to see these changes come to fruition. They're not stopping anytime soon. This is this is their new mission. This is the legacy for these victims. This is them making their point and, and making Canada a safer space. Um, the Prime Minister did make an appearance. The Premier of Nova Scotia, Tim Houston, was here. And... Uh, they, they did say that they're willing and, and able to make these changes. They, they want to be part of this change for the better. Um, and families have just made a big point of saying they will be holding them accountable to that and following them along to make sure that it does happen. Megan, everybody's talking about future changes and all that other stuff. And in your point in, in regard to the families going to hold them accountable for all of that. That being said, are Nova Scotians confident that if this was to happen tomorrow, that it would be handled differently? Forget about the suggestions coming, you know, down the pipe. What about right now? 
Absolutely. That truly is the question. Um, there isn't a lot of confidence here. Uh, from one of the uh, victim family members I spoke to, he's not 100% confident they could make this happen anywhere in the future. So I, I do doubt that they think that we are prepared at this point. Um, some of the findings that we found in this report did have immediate change in that, you know, now RCMP does know about the alerting system and they'd have no excuse not to at this point. But um, it, it is really a mixed bag here in terms of a healing community that just is continuing to feel the pain of what happened three years ago. Megan King with us, digital broadcast journalist with Global News Halifax, commenting on the, the long-anticipated Mass Casualty Commission report into the 2020 Nova Scotia shootings. Megan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Be well. Thank you, Scott. All right. Uh, do we have time to go to the phone, Will? Uh, we've got a caller on the line, uh, a relative uh, from somebody in the area. Uh, what are your thoughts? Al, what are my your thoughts? Th- What's your story? My story is that... <clears throat> I have a relative down there in Nova Scotia that is a retired police officer. And he said that they knew, and it's, it was on TV, it seemed it, if anybody's seen the beginning, that the guy, the first guy that was shot and died, he told the two cops then, and he told the ambulance that it was a full cop that shot him. He thought it was. They knew from the first shot, first call, that there was a uniformed cop and a cruiser that shot him. They didn't put the word out because they thought it was one of their own. There you go. That's wow. Told wow. Me. Okay. All right. Well, the rest of the story is, why are they playing up this background on him? That's to take the heat off of what, what the true story is. Well, the true story being that they didn't. Well, I mean, it has to start with a criminal in order to get to the point that they weren't prepared. Al, 24 but, uh, hours. 24 hours. Yeah. No, I agree. Obviously. Obviously, they knew, they, they knew and they thought it was one of it, I, I believe it was thir- I believe it was 13 hours. But thanks for the call, Al. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the six o'clock news. Scott, how are you today? I am well. How are you doing? So far, so good. Uh, the, the 32nd clock in baseball, it's new. When I saw it, I thought of you. What are your thoughts on it? Does this speed the game up? Yes. Yeah, no, no. You know what? I, I was talking last night to Mike Wilner, a longtime baseball columnist and broadcaster and everything else. We were talking about the Jays season, and this came up, the the, the 22nd clock, the pitch clock, whatever you want is to call it. Is it 20 or 30? What is it? 20. How does it work? F- 15 if there's nobody on base, 20 if there's a guy on base. When did I see 30? Well, I, I don't know. I must know. have been watching a game show. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Regardless. I thought it was baseball. Regardless. The, the, the so reality- what it, give us the thing. It's 15 and 20. When is it? What, what, explain it to us. Well, it's the idea is basically just to get guys to hurry it Quick. up. And, you know, I, I've heard people say, oh, you know, this is this is silly. We don't need a clock in baseball. I, I'm with Mike. Mike talked about this last time. I'm with Mike on this one. If you go back and watch baseball 25 years ago, 20 years ago, if you want to be a traditionalist, it didn't take as long as it was last year. Every guy didn't step out of the batter's box and adjust his gloves and fix his jock and everything else every single pitch. Now, that you should get an extra few seconds for, I believe. Well, Dave Steeb could never have done, you know, the, the pitch clock. The uh, the jock adjustment would have taken longer. But the, the reality is baseball has... Do you know something we don't know? Baseball has... Well, didn't you ever watch Dave Steeb pitch every pitch? It was adjust, 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 pitch, adjust, 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 adjust. Um, baseball has slowed down considerably from what it used to be when guys would get into the batter's box, the pitcher would get the ball, and the pitcher would pitch. And so... 
you know what, this this to me is not losing the tradition of the game or something. This is just bringing it back to the way and the pace that baseball used to be played at for the most part. So I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. What I'm going to be really interested to see is I think it's going to help some guys and I think it's really going to hurt other guys. There is a 30-second. Is it 30 with a guy on base? You're the sports guy here. I'm the motorhead. Um, 15 seconds with no runners on base. This is going to get confusing. 15 seconds with no runners on base. 20 seconds with runners on. Yes. 30 seconds. 30 seconds between batters. So oh. it wasn't a game show. I did see 30. Okay. So that yeah. So I, I was thinking. Okay. 30 is for the guy to get up to the to battle. Okay. Right. So, I didn't realize there were so many different. I thought it was just one. Oh, and there's other things that have been brought in, too. I mean, the bases are bigger this year. Uh, that's to try and prevent guys from stepping on other guys' feet or rolling ankles when they get to the base. And there's other things. I thought that was for the older fans to see. Well, could be that, too. Um, no, I, look, I, I think that it's going to be really interesting to see what this does, if anything, to the game. I, as I said, I think certain guys are going to benefit from this when they are just, you know, if certain people work better when they are on a clock. And I, and I mean that in all areas of work. If you are told, just keep moving. Don't, don't take time to think about it. Just do it. Just do it. Sometimes that really helps. Now, on the other hand, uh, working at a faster pace can wear guys out. And you may see people mm. who wear down as a game goes on and they're less effective because they, especially when it's 110 degrees out in the middle of summer for a game. So mm. we'll see. I think, it, I think it is going to change baseball for the better, but I definitely think it's going to change baseball. All right. Uh, hopefully speed it up, as they say. Um, does it matter that there's not a time limit on baseball? Does there need to be a time no, limit? No, definitely not. That 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 part, no. We don't need to say the game's got to be over in two yeah. hours or whatever, or you only play seven innings. Like, we can't, we can't do it like a kid's game where, well, when it gets dark, we only got three innings in because every, <laughs> you know, that we're, no, we're not doing that. Get rid, of the, get rid of the lighting, and when the sun sets, we're out. All well, right. see, because I hated last year or the year before, whenever it was, when they brought in that thing in extra innings when you start a guy on second base. I hated that. We Okay, mm. we need to move the game along, but we don't need to make it into something ridiculous. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great show. You too. Well, you have a good night. <laughs> I will. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. The problem that I see is we are encroaching on their area or territory. Uh, Coyotes that have been pushed off their natural hereditary land and they're coming into the uh, area where people have built houses on their territory and we are the ones that are causing the problem and then we say these animals are a nuisance that's my point of view thank you very much 